Hey, it's Jeff Semple filling in for Alan Carter this week. Here's what's on the podcast today. A local high school teacher explains what won't work in classrooms come September, why gay COVID patients can't donate blood plasma, and what are the effects of COVID-19 on our sleep? All that coming up. Let's get to it. Excited to be sitting in this chair on this day. An exciting day. Feels a little like Christmas, doesn't it? Sort of, maybe a little. The day that parents in Toronto have been waiting, I guess, about five months for. The day that we are finally expected to learn what school will look like in Canada's largest school board. There it is. There it is. Shout out. Thanks, Rob. Uh, it's exciting. And I think, you know, we get the champagne at the ready, uh, the confetti. Finally expected to learn what school is going to look like come the fall, which, uh, you know, for those keeping score is now less than three weeks away, according to the official start date. But we have heard from the TDSB that they may be looking, will likely be looking at staggered start dates, depending on your school for the first couple of weeks of the school year. But what will school look like? We're about to find out. A meeting got underway just about eight minutes ago. The Finance, Budget and Enrollment Committee with the TDSB. And then they will have another meeting, a special meeting at 3 p.m. this afternoon to finally decide which model they want to move forward with. And I don't know about you, but this whole story uh, is starting to feel a little bit like the plot of an M. Night Shyamalan movie. You know M. Night Shyamalan, the, the movie producer in Hollywood who's made, you know, produced Signs and Unbreakable. I think my my favorite M. Night Shyamalan movie, like a movie that I just, I love it because I love to hate it, is The Village. Did you ever see that one back in 2004? It was, you know, set back in the 19th century. This village of people who live next to this forest that's full of monsters. Uh, so, you know, that creates some challenges, of course. And, you know, lots of twists and turns through the movie that culminate in the big twist at the end. Turns out it's not the 19th century. They're actually living in, in modern day America. And those monsters, well, those are actually village elders who've been dressing up like monsters to keep people from living, from leaving the village. And you're like, what? No. <laughs> That's how I feel about this story when it comes to what school is going to look like in the fall. But as I say, the end is nigh. So take heart. We're almost there. Board trustees expected to make their decision today on the latest plan. They're looking at three different proposals. All of them would see the TDSB deploy 400 staff to help support smaller class sizes depending on the particular school in that particular neighborhood. They will identify priority neighborhoods and deploy staff accordingly also be spending millions on hiring new teachers to make that happen. But these three plans, you know, the total investment can vary significantly from, you know, around $3 million from the board's existing budget up to almost $60 million from the board's reserve fund. And in addition to trying to make these smaller class sizes work, depending on the region, also looking at mandatory masks for all students, not just those in grade four and up. So lots to talk about. Want to open the phone lines on this one. You can give us a call, 416-870-6400. It's 416-870-6400. Hope to take a couple of calls before the end of the segment. Want to start first, though, with a high school teacher in the GTA who joins us now on the line, Ronak Chowdhury. Thanks so much for joining us here on Global News Radio. Oh, hi. Good afternoon. Thanks for making time for this. Uh, I, I guess I got to ask, I mean, as a, as a high school teacher in the GTA, how are you feeling at this point? I think as a high school teacher and many teachers, high school and uh, elementary teachers and education workers, all of us are feeling a little bit worried. We're, you know, we're trying to figure out what the plan is. Just like parents, we, many of us are parents, 
haven't been given privy to any of the, the plans that are coming our way. Many high school teachers are, they don't even know what they're teaching. Uh, with the TDSB, I know they've talked about a quadmaster system, but different boards across the province have their own plans and, and ways that they're trying to um, figure out how to do the deployment. And so, you know, a lot of teachers, it's, it's, it's a matter of, you know, how do we plan and program? Because we want to do our jobs well. We want to, you know, support our children. We want our children to learn. We want, you know, the best for our kids. But if there's no plan and we don't know what to program for, how do you make sure that that's done in the best way possible? Right, and and you know, in term one of the of the sort of key sticking points, I think, right, especially when we talk about the teachers' union and um, and the province just not agreeing on class sizes. And Premier Doug Ford has taken a lot of heat uh, because of that, defending his dis- the government's decision to reopen elementary schools with regular class sizes. And yesterday was asked about that again and started listing off all of the doctors and health officials uh, who agree with that policy. How do you feel about that? Um, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I'm not uh, an expert, so I can't comment on that. I do think that, you know, when we're talking about safety and um, what's best for our kids, having a small class, smaller class size, that's what we need. Many classrooms, many, many classrooms across Ontario don't have sinks and places to wash up. Many classrooms are 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 designed for, you know, a 30-class um, student in the classroom. So, you know, how do we make sure social distancing, distancing is happening? How do we make sure our kids are the safest that they can be and learning in the optimal kind of condition? And so when you're saying, you know, we're going to keep cap sizes as they are, the question is, how are the children being centered in all of this? Or is this a matter of this, you know, restarting the economy and childcare? Is it about education or is it about the economy? And that's really the biggest thing. Speaking with Ronak Chowdhury, who's a high school teacher in the GTA and uh, also interested in taking your calls with this, if you have anything to add to the discussion, we are waiting to, you know, pretty imminent now to find out what the TDSB will decide in terms of how to move forward in with opening classrooms in the fall. The number to call, 416-870-6400. Um, you know, the other controversial piece in all of this, Ronak, has been masks. Uh, we heard originally from the province when it put its proposals forward, suggesting that masks be mandatory for all students grade four and up but now it sounds like the tdsb will be making masks mandatory for all students regardless of their age how do you feel about that i mean is that even remotely realistic i think every child is unique and every child has things that they're really good at and things that are challenges i work in special education so i'm not only high school but i'm also special education i work with children on the autism spectrum children with you know, different types of needs. The reality is, is that everyone will react to masks differently. Do I think it's a good idea to say, yeah, we want the masks to happen? Do I think it's going to happen 100% of the children 100% of the time? It's not. And so that's where I think maybe there's some learning to be done, some teaching to be done. But we also have to recognize that children have needs and their needs sometimes are sensory Sometimes, you know, kids want to be kids, they want to play, they want to run around and so on and so forth. So are masks going to be um, used all the time? I'm, 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 I'm a little skeptical about that, uh, but I do think it's a good idea to say that this is an expectation. And, and presumably it will be up to you and your colleagues to enforce that, right? 
Yes, and I think this is this is where we use our professional judgment. You know, we know our kids. We know what they can and cannot do. You know, a lot of it in the beginning, I believe, is going to be okay. Like, okay, guys, let's learn through this. So what do we? What can we do? If you're starting to feel, you know, your mask isn't irritate, like irritating you, or you know, you're having um, struggles with it, how do we communicate that? Um, I don't think this is something that should be disciplinary. Like, you have to wear a mask if you don't wear a mask. You go to the office. I think a lot of this has to be. All of this is learning. It's learning for the staff. It's learning for a kid. And I think that's the piece of that we have to take it step by step. And that's really what it's all about. It's about our safety for our kids and our staff, but it's also about learning. And all of this is new to everyone. Talking with a high school teacher in the GTA, Ronak Chowdhury, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts and uh, good luck to you and your colleagues in uh, in a few weeks' time. I know it's a tall task ahead of you. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk about it. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. You know, we've been talking a lot about COVID-19, of course, and uh, the various tools that we have in the toolkit to try and keep people safe. And if they do get sick, you know, how best to treat them? Well, one of those tools involves a century-old approach that has been used previously to fend off uh, the flu and the measles before we had a measles vaccine and has really been one of the go-to tactics for physicians when new diseases come along. Um, And it's called blood plasma, convalescent plasma treatment, where you use blood from an infected patient, someone who has had a disease and then recovered, built up antibodies to that disease, and you take their blood and they then you use it to help to treat people who become infected later. Uh, fascinating stuff. And the history of this treatment, as I say, an old one, dates back about a century. And history suggests that it works against some diseases not all, a uh, bit of a mixed bag. So needless to say, scientists have been scrambling to study the applicability of blood, tras- blood plasma treatment when it comes to COVID-19 patients. Um, and Canadian Blood Services has been advertising about this, asking people to donate their blood, especially if they've had COVID-19. Have a listen. When you hear the word plasma, you may think plasma TV. A very different kind of plasma flows through your veins. Plasma is the protein-rich fluid part of your blood. It helps protect your body against illness and infection and controls excessive bleeding. Donated plasma is used for medical treatments. It can help people with bleeding disorders, weakened immune systems, and much more. Patients worldwide depend on it for a better quality of life and in some cases to save their lives. For more information, visit blood.ca. That an advertisement uh, from Canadian Blood Services that you'd hear on radio stations, including this one, um, asking people to help with donating their blood to you know, be studied and potentially used to help COVID-19 patients. And you might remember back in March, uh, Canadian Blood Services was also advertising, urgently asking people to donate blood because they saw a a huge drop-off in people lining up to donate because people were concerned incorrectly that they might get sick from COVID-19 if they did line up to donate blood. So the Canadian Blood Services has really been putting the call out for people to donate blood through the course of this pandemic. But what if you weren't allowed to donate, to donate blood and the reason given was your sexuality? We're going to talk about that with our next guest who joins us on the line now. Mackay Taggart is the Ontario Regional Director of News here at Global News. He's a colleague of ours um, and joins us now to talk about this. Hi, Mackay. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeff. 
So you count yourself as a recovered COVID-19 patient. I remember, you know, Global News when the the email went out that one of our colleagues had become infected with COVID-19 earlier on in the pandemic. And just remind me, remind our listeners when you became infected with COVID-19. Yeah, sorry about that email. I know that no no one likes to get that email about someone in their office. But back in early March, I was traveling in Europe, um, actually with another colleague from Global News. And uh, both of us were on a ski trip, and we came home, and um, my colleague in particular wasn't feeling very well, ended up getting tested for COVID-19, tested positive. I had been feeling better. I hadn't had... Uh, dramatic symptoms, but I was, it was recommended I get tested as well, and I, sure enough, tested positive, and um, that was in mid-March, and by about March 28th, I was deemed to be a uh, recovered or a resolved case of COVID-19. Right, and what was your case like? I mean, we've, you know, obviously we've heard it can be quite a range in terms of symptoms and severity. It certainly can, and, and I was one of the lucky ones. My, my symptoms were very minor. I felt uh, tired and a little bit run down. I did uh, have a slight cough, but I never had trouble breathing. I never had dramatic fevers or, or any of the uh, extenuating and, and more severe symptoms that people report. I did notice that my sense of smell and taste had diminished significantly, but again, within, within a couple of weeks, I was uh, back to 100%. Right. Uh, and now you are among the, you know, quote unquote immune, right? Those with uh, who've had the virus recovered and are believed to have some immunity to it. Perhaps. Um, yeah. 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 And so why did you I know we were, we were chatting earlier and uh, and you'd been actually even tweeting about this in your experience. You decided to donate blood. Why did you decide to do that? And, and what happened? Yeah, well, I, I uh, early on when I was diagnosed, I asked the doctors at Sunnybrook, where I originally tested positive, is there anything I can do? I knew at that point the virus was very much in its early stages. What we knew about it was really limited. And I and I right away said, if there's anything I can do, any trials or um, tests or studies that you need recovered patients to be a part of, I'd love to be involved. And they seemed eager to, to um, you know, to, to take advantage of that. And, um, and so when I got a note from... Um, this study being conducted in part with McMaster University in Hamilton and with Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto, a Concourse study, as, as they were calling it, I, I was really eager to participate. And I said, 100%, I will, I will donate whatever I need to do or do whatever I need to do. And, um, and they seemed very uh, interested in having my, uh, my participation. Um, and then um, I, I found out from Canadian Blood Service after, after pre-qualifying for this study um, that, in fact, I was ineligible to participate because I am a gay man and I uh, did not meet the requirements that uh, Canadian Blood Service has in order to um, donate blood or donate plasma in this case. What was your reaction? I was really disappointed. I was, um, you know, I, I felt as though here I was in a, in a unique and somewhat unfortunate situation having contracted this virus. Um, but if I could help uh, the research community, if I could help other Canadians, if I could help understand this virus better, I was really excited and interested in, in doing that. And the fact that my sexuality uh, was what was preventing me from participating was really disappointing. And and I, I had known for some time, I might, I, I, uh, um, I used to donate blood, actually, before I, I came out, before I um, sort of lived my life as a gay person, um, and then obviously have not been able to donate blood for the last uh, 10 or 15 years because Canada has had a long-standing, used to be a ban, uh, and now it is not a ban. Uh, in a, a number of years ago, Canada went from, the Canadian Blood Service went from having a, a lifetime ban on, on gay men, and actually I shouldn't, if I'm going to use the proper terminology that the Canadian Blood Service has used, it's actually men who have sex with men is the term they use because not all um, men who have sex with men identify as being gay. 
gay. But um, the, the, the ban was uh, reduced to a one-year deferral period. And then just in the last two years, I believe, that, that one-year deferral period has been reduced to a three-month deferral period. And um, basically, from the last time that you have any type of sexual encounter with a person of the same sex, you are um, not allowed to donate blood or plasma for that for that period, regardless of whether you're in a monogamous relationship or not, um, and regardless, without being graphic, regardless of what that sexual encounter is, um, you are um, not eligible to to donate blood. And so I felt really, frankly, discriminated against because a lot of the literature I've read and um, the the science is is not is not um, conclusive regarding this approach. And in fact. Many countries, many um, countries that, that are allies of ours and that have advanced medical systems, countries like Chile, Argentina, Spain, Mexico, Israel, Russia, Brazil, Italy, and I could go on, all of these countries have eliminated um, any type of deferral or ban on um, blood donations from men who have sex with men. Right, and we've asked uh, Canadian Blood Services to respond to, you know, these concerns and, um, and you know, and, and kind of explain the situation. But as you noted, I mean, this is a... A policy that that goes back some ways and, uh, you know, dates back to the 1980s and concerns that gay and bisexual men were deemed to be at a higher risk of having HIV. But, uh, of course, now, as you noted, that policy and that reasoning is, is would appear to be outdated given that we can, you know, test the blood for HIV. You can well, screen and, and for that's specific the thing. behaviors. The thing that frustrates me, obviously, when I'm asked questions by a medical professional, Canadian Blood Service, I answer honestly. But but there's nothing compelling me to do that or compelling anyone else to do that. And, um, you know, people's sexual behaviors is obviously a personal matter. And people are obviously, uh, in certain cases, not going to be honest. And so simply taking people at their word for, for their, for uh, you know, who they've been um, engaging with in a personal way uh, is, is not 100% reliable and 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 blood that that enters our um, system at the Canadian Blood Service does get tested, but there is, uh, and the science indicates this, a gap between nine days and two weeks when something like HIV could be detected in in a blood sample. And Canadian Blood Service obviously wants to expedite the process and, and make it make the donation process as seamless as possible. So blood is tested almost, as I understand it, almost immediately after it is donated, and then it is added to the the, the country's blood supply. Um, and so there is, you know, while the risk is is rather narrow, uh, nine to, to 14 days, the deferral period extends way beyond that to three months. Um, and, and instead of testing blood, let's say, you know, after a two-week period um, or uh, reducing that deferral period, they simply have this, this um, ban or this, this deferral in place, which, which seems rather archaic. Speaking with Mackay Taggart, who's the Ontario Regional Director of uh, Global News, but also uh, is a gay man uh, who was uh, prevented from donating his blood to help um, with the study and treatment of future COVID-19 patients as a recovered patient himself. And it's probably worth noting, Mackay, there is a, a petition that was actually recently started on this uh, by a new Democrat MP, Randall Garrison, out of BC. Uh, that's online now on the website of the House of Commons for people who want to add their signature. Um, but I guess, you know, quickly, we're just about out of time. But in terms of, you know, you you did, you tweeted this out, you're sharing your story. Um, and I know, you know, those of us in the news business, it, it can be, well, it can be tricky for every, everyone and, and certainly people in our industry to kind of make yourself the story. Uh, why did you feel that was, you know, warranted in this case? 
Yeah, I mean, this, 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 um, I found out about this and, and was prevented from donating plasma back in late April. So it's been some time. And I was hoping that this issue might come out, um, organically. Uh, and I, and I was hoping that maybe some other, another gay individual in a similar situation might, might publicize this matter. And they, that hadn't happened to the best of my knowledge. And, and the other day I was driving home from work and was listening to the radio, uh, this station, I think, in fact, and I heard that ad and it kind of, it got under my skin a little bit. And it felt like here is the, Canadian Blood Service pleading with people to to contribute and to do something um, for their community and for their country, and I'm trying to do that. And and some rule that many view as archaic and outdated prevents me from from helping. And I would like to think that at least in these extenuating and bizarre COVID-related circumstances, there could be a workaround where perhaps um, you know blood is collected, tested after that nine to two week period, um, and then is allowed to contribute to hopefully some positive research and maybe helping other people recover from this virus. Mackay Taggart, uh, who was prevented from donating blood to the Canadian Blood Services because of his sexuality after he has recovered from COVID-19. Glad you've recovered. Great to have you back and uh, hope to catch up in person again soon. Thanks so much for speaking so candidly about this. Uh, Really appreciate it. Mackay Taggart, who's also the Ontario Regional Director of News here at Global News, one of our colleagues, senior correspondent for Global National News based in Toronto. That's my day job. And uh, earlier this year, I also got Another job. I am a uh, new dad, relatively speaking. My wife and I had our uh, had a baby girl December 30th. Um, so she's uh, just coming up on eight months old, which is crazy. But as a new dad, of course, one of my favorite things to do and talk about is sleep. Uh, which has been a bit of a roller coaster ride, as uh, any other parent I'm sure knows much better than I do. That uh, you know, you, I'm just not getting enough of it. Uh, it's not been as bad lately. She's uh, down to kind of the one wake up a night. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's you know, it's a challenge, right, for new parents and sleep and um, kind of that relationship. Uh, and of course, that is without a pandemic, uh, which for a lot of people has made things even worse. When it comes to our sleep habits, you know, there's a whole new lexicon of words that we've been using during this pandemic, physical distancing, uh, you know, quarantining, all that. And another one that's just come up on my radar is COVID somnia, COVID somnia used to describe the impact that the pandemic is having with people's sleep. And doctors all over the world say that they're seeing an influx in patients with disrupted sleep patterns linked to the pandemic. And one of those doctors joins us now on the line, Raymond Godchuk, who is the medical director of the Sleep Disorders Clinic at McMaster University. Thanks so much for joining us here on Global News Radio. Well, thank you, Jeff. A pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. And so what are you seeing in this regard when we talk about, you know, the patients that you see every day? Any change as a result of the pandemic? Well, absolutely. And I think what we need to look at is that these challenges are enormous. And if you go through the just the basic alphabet of ABCDEF, you get the anxiety issues that people are having to deal with, the behavioral issues related to the changes in scheduling, uh, sees the connections, there's this disruption to daily life which is absolutely enormous, affecting women disproportionately. Uh, you know, they're not able to leave the house very often. And, uh, you know, because the kids are at home, they can't go to school. We're looking at dietary changes. Meal times have been changed around. Uh, obviously, we have the concern about the lockdown libations where people are consuming much more alcohol. Or if you want the sort of pandemic potent potable consumption, everyone reports drinking way more, uh, which affects sleep. Um, We're looking at excess screen time. Uh, You can have this obsessional watching of, of, uh, you know, news 
through CNN and things like that, which is a deluge of really distressing news. And then all the family and work-related stress and, you know, fatigue associated with that. It, it's just it's just really been awful. So we've seen a lot of change. And then all, you know, the other aspect is that previously we were able to see patients in person and now all communication has to be telephonic. So this has been, these are the challenges uh, that, that people are facing. And obviously we've come up with guidelines to help people sleep better. Yeah, well, talk to us about that. I mean, what should we do? As you mentioned, there are just so many different factors in that in that that you listed quite well. But I mean, that's a lot to combat, right? So how how do we find well, our way through this? Well, let's and get let's a good go back sleep? to the yeah back to the A B C D E F, uh, which uh, so we started with the A, which are the activities. What can we do in our activities that promote a better sleep? And typically, what we want is to set a schedule. I mean, you as a new dad know. Uh, that once you set a schedule with your baby, the sleep improves enormously. And most of us like to be contained. You know, the state of entropy where we gallop off to the the undiscovered boundaries. But when we are given boundaries, uh, we retain a a sense of momentum and purpose. So the wake-up time needs to be set. Uh, A wind-down time in the evening, making sure that you're not going to bed frustrated, angry, or upset, Picking a fairly consistent bedtime, if at all possible, and just keeping your schedule as routine as possible. Getting up in the morning, making the bed, making sure it's comfortable, having a shower, getting shaved, putting on clothing. You know, all of the things that we would think are just sort of motherhood statements, they are extremely helpful. Uh, we reserve the bed only for sleep. And, you know, in, in sleep medicine, it's long been a, a truism that you you keep the sleep for sleep and sex only, the bed for sleep and sex only. You don't do your tax returns, eat your meals or watch TV, um, as these do not promote a good sleep. You certainly want to encourage light exposure during the day, keeping the house light and airy, seeing light, going for walks, And the diet is really important. Most people have put on weight during this pandemic. And at one time, you will have recognized uh, that there was no flour in the supermarkets. People were baking to beat beat the band. And, you know, all of these amateur bread makers and uh, other gastronomic uh, successes that we've achieved, they need to be put on the back burner, if you'll excuse the pun, because... uh, You know, it doesn't suit us when we gain weight. And then caffeine consumption has skyrocketed, as has alcohol. That's it. That's it. I'm afraid afraid we're out of time there, but I can certainly relate uh, as having putting on the the pandemic pounds at the same time as I'm working on my new dad bod. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch The Alan Carter Show every weekday starting at noon.